This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by Kinship United, a nonprofit organization rescuing orphans and widows around the world from trafficking, slavery, and death for the past 19 years. To learn more about how you can rescue an orphan or widow, visit kinshipunited.org today. It is Wednesday, January 30th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Bishop Ephraim Tendero joins us to talk about a church bombing in the Philippines. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by my co-host and our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Hey. And I'm glad that Mark is back because Mark has been traveling a lot overseas, too. Probably not as much as you travel, Bishop, but a decent amount. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of good to be back because it's going to be, although I'm looking forward to tomorrow when it's going to be negative 22 to 25 with a windshield factor of negative 50. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to it because, and our listeners might correct me on this, my memory is that in, the, in Jack London's Call of the Wild, there is a scene in which the uh, main character spits when it's 50 below and the spit freezes before it hits the ground. Tomorrow you'll have confirmation. So, so to, to tomorrow I will see if that really happens and I'll report next week on Quick to Listen whether it really happened. In case you need another reason to listen to the show. Exactly. <laughs> well, we perspire in our country. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a little different. Uh, there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. My daughter is actually visiting there right now with her adopted son, oh. husband, and daughter also. I see. To visit the, orphan, the, the orphanage from which they were adopted in, the, oh, in Manila. Okay. So. That's good. All right. Do you want to tell us more about our guest today? Yes. Mark? Uh, Bishop, uh, Bishop Tendero is head of the World Evangelical Alliance. He's been doing that since 2015. Before that, he was national director of the Philippine Council of Evangelical Churches since 1993 to 2015. The council, by the way, is the largest network of evangelical Christians in the Philippines, composed of some 30,000 evangelical churches, 69 denominations, 160 parachurch and mission organizations. He also serves as Associate General Secretary for Southeast Asia of the Asia Evangelical Alliance and as is also my cohort in the Philippines. He's executive editor of Evangelicals Today, the longest-running Christian magazine in the, in the Philippines. So given what uh, Morgan's going to introduce the show, you'll see why Bishop Tendera is a perfect guest for us today. We're glad that you're here. Yes, Good. thank you for giving me the opportunity, though we are, you know, half of the world apart. I'm here in Manila, and uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to interact with you. When did your magazine start? Well, Bishop it was started back when the Evangelical Council of Churches uh, was established. That was uh, back in 1977. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's a long time magazine. But we thank God for the opportunity of being able to uh, present the evangelical perspectives as well as uh, evangelical situation, how we look at situation uh, in the Philippines. Well, wonderful. All right. I'm sure some people would like some more information about what we mentioned at the beginning of the show. So I'm going to 
get into our discussion. ISIS has claimed responsibility for an attack that killed 20 churchgoers and soldiers at a Catholic church in the Philippines. Two bombs exploded at Our Lady of Mount Carmel in Jolo, where, according to our reporting, the first bomb blasted through rows of pews and the second bomb shot from the entrance to kill scrambling parishioners, as well as the guards positioned outside to protect the church week after week. The attack came several days after a key vote in the region's surrounding islands on a referendum that offered the area greater autonomy. While Muslims in Jolo largely opposed the referendum, which was part of an effort to end ongoing clashes between Philippine forces and separatists, it passed anyway. So over the years, the Philippines has been home to a number of Islamic terrorist groups, including one known as Abu Sayyaf. And Abu Sayyaf in particular has pledged allegiance to ISIS and has persecuted Christians for decades. It has conducted dozens of kidnappings, for example, including of Christian missionaries. And it also assassinated the Bishop of Jolo outside of Mount Carmel in 1997 and bombed the cathedral in 2001. This week on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss the relationship between Christians and Muslims in Asia's most Christian country. And we'd also like to get into the health of the Filipino church in the 21st century. So, Bishop, before we ask you some of the questions that we have about this particular situation, we offer a chance for Mark and I to react to this news. And so, Mark, I just wanted to hear your gut check and take on this latest incident of terrorism. Yeah, it's interesting how some incidents of terrorism, you know, you get inured to them as a journalist. You hear about so many of them. And so you you, you note it and you're intellectually, in a sense, you're intellectually sad. But this one, I don't know, felt it, it touched me for some reason. So... Just that kind of ongoing deep sadness that there's this kind of violence in the world in general and particularly against Christians. My reaction to this was one of trying to just understand what's gone on. I kind of watched some of the headlines coming out of the Philippines last week with regards to this referendum that was going to be passed. And I was a little bit curious about how exactly this referendum came to be and what it was going to mean for the Christians that did live in some of these more predominantly Muslim regions. But given that the referendum passed, I was really surprised that this attack happened. And I was actually pretty confused by it about, given the fact that I I kind of would have expected it more if the referendum had failed. But that may just me, well, what I probably think is happening there is I'm just not fully comprehending this particular situation. So um, I'm really glad that we can talk about it on the podcast today and um, provide some additional information for everyone who's listening to this. Bishop, I wanted to ask you some contextual questions about this before we talk about the bombing itself. The first thing I wanted to bring up is that for many people who think of the Philippines, they immediately think of Catholicism. But how long has this Muslim community existed and how long has it been around? Well, first of all, before I answer that, I want to thank you for the interest and highlighting this news and uh, being able to help and um, people understand about what's happening and uh, inviting me as uh, a resource person in this uh, discussion. And we thank you for that. In answer to your question... You're welcome. And in answer to your question, actually, the, is, you know, uh, Islam came to the islands uh, in the Philippines earlier than uh, Catholic Christianity. The Islamic traders come to the Philippines in 13th century. So... They were there to do some trade 
in the Philippines as Arab traders. And uh, Magellan actually accidentally landed in one of the islands in 1521 and brought Catholicism there. So, in a sense, Islam came in the 13th century and uh, Roman Catholicism brought by Magellan came in uh, 1521. Were many of the people who were encountering Catholicism through Magellan and through later um, explorers through Spain, were, were, were many of them previously Muslims? Uh, not really, because um, the concentration of uh, Islamic, we would say, population was uh, in the southern Philippines and particularly the southwest uh, Philippines. Then there were some spots or pockets in Manila. So... When Magellan came to the Philippines, um, the most Filipinos there are, I would say, just practicing whatever native uh, beliefs they would have, but not the predominantly Muslim population was in the southwest Philippines, southwestern Philippines. From what I recall correctly about history, um, when the Muslim community and Magellan's forces interacted, there was actually conflict. And did Magellan die from that conflict? Uh, yes, uh, Magellan, uh, uh, when he was trying to uh, attack the uh, one of the central islands in the Philippines, um, one of the local chieftains, Lapu-Lapu, was the one who resisted. And Magellan was killed in that battle in Lapu-Lapu. But that is not... Um, that is more the uh, what we call the Lumad communities in the Philippines, not necessarily Islamic communities. Yeah. So since that happened, when Magellan and his men arrived, what has the relationship been like between the areas Christians and Muslim communities? The the Muslims that are that are there in the south um, have resisted both the Spanish and then later on the. Uh, the American colonization of their homeland, which is called Mindanao, and uh, the conflict that uh, we have in this land, in that land for the past two decades, was actually exacerbated by a number of social and historical, as well as uh, social and historical factors. And one of them, a strong anti-Muslim bias by majority Christian population in the Philippines. So majority of those that are from the northern Philippines became, uh, we would say, Roman Catholic Christians, as influenced by Magellan. And the, uh, those that are in the southern Philippines, of Mindanao, are the ones who remained as Islam. Very interesting. And you were saying that, in, in many ways, these Christians really just like didn't have a high regard for... Um, other Filipino yeah. Muslims. So the the Islamic community are in what is called now the um, we actually have the um, region called the autonomous region of Muslim Mindanao. There are thirteen provinces in that, but the rest of Mindanao and the Visayas and the northern Philippines have been uh, largely converted to Roman Catholic Christianity. Gotcha. From 1521 to about 1898, uh, we were under the colony of Spain. And then um, when our national hero, Jose Rizal, was executed by the Spaniards in 1896, that actually sparked, uh, that also sparked the revolution of the Filipinos against Spain. 
And then we were helped by the Americans who came in 1898 also, when Admiral George Dewey uh, sank the Spanish Armada in Manila Bay in May 1 of 1898. And then after that, we had the declaration of our Philippine independence on June 12, 1898. Admiral George Dewey was even the guest of honor in that uh, celebration of the Declaration of Independence. Then we had the short uh, Filipino-American War that happened. And then after that, we were under the colony of uh, America uh, until about 1940, 1946. And you had mentioned that the Muslim community had been able to keep its independence during that time. Yeah, because um, the Spaniards wanted to colonize those Muslim community, but they were able to resist that. And then even during the time of the American occupation in the Philippines, they tried to subjugate that area, but they were not uh, fully subjugated. In fact, the 45 caliber pistol was, uh, this was actually uh, was done in, in the Philippines because during the time when this, the American soldiers were patrolling the area and the um, Islamic fighters will attack, they will just. They were just using this 38 uh, caliber revolver, and even though they hit them, they can still attack the American soldiers. So they tried to um, have the higher power pistol, and that is the 45 caliber, so that as they hit the Islamic uh, attackers around them, they cannot continue on and attack the American soldiers. Oh yeah. Then later on, the American policy is to try to bring what we call the Tagalog or the Northerners and try to go to Mindanao and they call it the land of promise. And they, yeah, it's a very fertile land. The good thing about uh, the topography of that land is that uh, it is not visited by typhoons. See, the Philippines being in the uh, front line of the Pacific is visited by about 20 typhoons a year. About Five of them will be destructive. And so it hits mainly the eastern border of the Philippines going northwards. But the southern, southwest Philippines was not affected by such typhoons. It's not in the typhoon belt, uh, typhoon path. Therefore, it was a land of promise because it is a very fertile land and not visited by typhoons. Therefore, people are encouraged to go down south, the land of promise, and they can develop uh, like homestead and occupy territories and develop that into rich agricultural lands. And and it sounds like, based what we know on what happened with the bombing, that there always has been a small Christian population that also lived in this area? Yes. In fact, um, the population, uh, the, the Christian population that live in area, live in harmonious relationship with the majority Muslim in those communities. But then later on uh, in the development, uh, when the uh, ones who were occupying the land, tills the land, more and more the Islam, Islamic communities are being pushed out further down south and southwest. And uh, during that time, the Islamic people are trying to say we are being uh, marginalized and we are being left out in the development in our land. You know, even as of 2005, in the Human Development Report, showed that the 
Muslim areas like Lanao del Sur, Maguindanao, Sulu, Tawi-Tawi, and Basilan, they continue to suffer the highest uh, poverty incidence because they were not they were not given the proper, uh, we would say, development coming from the central government that comes from Manila. So it's, it sounds like you kind of think that some of the government policies um, have made this area a little bit more extremist. Because uh, they were being left out in the, as I've said, in the development, in the the development is mainly from Manila and going up north and down um, uh, central Visayas and Mindanao, but but uh, northern Mindanao, but the southern Mindanao area are neglected in terms of development. I want to talk about Abu Sayyaf. Mark, it sounded when we were talking yesterday that you had heard of them a little bit. Yeah, because we did a story about one uh, one missionary couple that had been kidnapped by them, I don't know, uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, it was uh, Martin and Graham, Martin and Grasa Bornham, yeah, that was uh, yeah, kidnapped right. by them. Mm-hmm. So we're familiar with them at Christianity Today, at least yes. to some mm-hmm. degree. So how did they get, uh, what is their relationship with ISIS right now then? Are they, there's two separate yeah, groups? The ISIS, uh, the Abu Sayyaf claims to be uh, part of the ISIS now, and they have embraced ISIS uh, ideology. But let me just start that uh, the the Abu Sayyaf started back when uh, Russia invaded Afghanistan, when Russia invited, uh, Af- Af- uh, invaded Afghanistan, the United States uh, help organize and train international Islamic fighters against the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1980s. So after the, so- the Soviets left Afghanistan, then these uh, Islamic uh, freedom fighters that were trained in Afghanistan gave birth to various Islamist groups, and uh, they came back to the Philippines. After that, uh, one of their uh, their founder is um, Abdul Jarak Abu Bakar Janjalani. He came back to the Philippines in 1991 after serving in Afghanistan, and he became what is called the the freedom fighter. Now. They were part of the Moro National Liberation Front then, but uh, when the Moro National Liberation Front began talking with the government in terms of uh, having a peace agreement, then the the Abu Sayyaf group who came from fighting in Afghanistan uh, said, well, the their leaders gave up, the, they felt that their vision for independence um, was given up by their leaders because the, the Muslim wanted, they were actually secessionists. They want to separate and dismember that area from the Philippine uh, government. So there was this um, Moro National Liberation Front that uh, was there in the 1970s. Now, when these freedom fighters that came from, uh, that were trained in Afghanistan to fight the Russians, after the Russians left already there, then they came back to the Philippines. They have arms. They have the training in terms of handling arms, but now they don't have their livelihood. They don't have salaries, and uh, they have their own skills. Then they saw that their leaders are giving up the vision of their quest for independence when they started the peace talks with the Philippine government. And therefore, they started to behave like a gang of seasoned combatants. 
and uh, they separated from their uh, main group of liberation front. They become combatants, and then they become like uh, we would say bandits. They actually use their skills and training for livelihood. And what is that livelihood? Livelihood, it is the kidnap for ransom bandits uh, that largely stays in Holo area. So that's that's really interesting then that they've been around that long. And, and I guess when we were talking earlier about the missionaries, that would make sense why they were kidnapping people then was for that ransom money. Mark had mentioned that this group had also pledge allegiance to ISIS. And was that something that was surprising at all? Or that just kind of like fits into what you were saying about them seeing themselves as kind of like this part of this global freedom fighters movement? It was uh, foreseen that they would, you know, when an extremist group will come out and they will join the extremist group. And the main group of the uh, Moro uh, National Liberation Front and then later on another group uh, came out called the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. They were supported by the large, uh, by, largely by the people in the community who are in the Islamic community. But uh, this uh, Abu Sayyaf group, are disowned by the mainline uh, Islamic community. And yeah, they became the bandits and used their skills and their training as uh, renegade um, kidnap for ransom bandits. So yeah, so they were, they were uh, rejected by the mainstream uh, uh, Muslim community. Yes, in the Philippines yes. Mm-hmm. This recent attack that just happened a couple days ago, ISIS has claimed responsibility for this, why do you think they were they went after Christians in particular? What they want to do is pit Muslims and Christians against each other because they they did not want that the majority Muslims would like to have that peace agreement to settle the century-old conflict between the um, majority Islamic community and the Philippine government. So, as you, as you have said, you know the referendum for the peace agreement was just um, approved by the by the people. And that province, Holo, was one of those two provinces or two cities, two areas rather, that did not vote in favor of the uh, plebiscite for the peace agreement. And therefore, it could be that because they don't want the peace agreement to really flourish, then they are trying to sow more terror. And uh, you can see that in that church building, in that um, cathedral, uh, many of those who died are also soldiers because the soldiers are the ones who are particularly in the uh, guarding that area. And uh, people there are peaceful loving. I've been in that area um, when I first went to that area. The person that greeted me is the, one of the sultans. In fact, when I first visited Holo. Uh, the sultan uh, welcomed me from the airport, and he said, Bishop, as long as you are here with me, no one will touch you. Um, so you can so you can see how the uh, moderate Islamic community are peace-loving and would like to support peace. And they had that negotiated the peaceful solution to the century-old conflict. And therefore, those that would be affected in terms of maybe they are using Abu Sayyaf to, and who are now claiming to be ISIS 
to continue to sow that kind of uh, hatred and uh, not to have the peaceful agreement because there are people who are uh, earning their wealth and power interests by conflict. And therefore, uh, they do not want uh, the peace agreement to flourish. We have people who are involved in peace building uh, in the land, in the, in the area. They are peace building workers on the ground. And they have seen that the, it could be that the powerful parties may be behind the bombings, and particularly the one that has recently came out in the cathedral in Holo. If I'm understanding you correctly, last week when they had this referendum, it sounded like in Holo, where this, where this bombing took place, this was one of the few areas where the community did not vote in favor of the referendum. And so you think that they were singled out specifically because of that. Can you just give us a, a short summary of what this referendum was over or what they were deciding? Let me backtrack. The Liberation Front of the Islamic uh, Community started back in 75, during 1975. Then during the time of President Ramos in 1995, they were able to sign the uh, peace agreement and um, started the Autonomous Region of Muslim Mindanao. However, there were some provisions in the peace agreement that were not fully um, fulfilled and that actually gave rise to what is later on now called the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And uh, they continued on in the quest for independence. So first of all, Nur Miswari, the Moro National Liberation Front, um, was uh, seeking for independence, so secessionist movement. But then in 1995, he entered into the peace agreement with the former President Ramos. And uh, because of that, the other Islamic people said, why did you give up the, our quest for independence? And that actually gave rise to the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And uh, they continued on the quest for independence. However, later on, um, the leaders, and through the efforts of peace-building communities and other people who are trying to encourage what is uh, what we call now the uh, political settlement of the military conflict, because um, they said, you know, uh, in war nobody wins. Let's uh, try to see what can be done, what is the win-win sol solution. And so they gave up also their quest for independence and began to have that negotiation to go back to the uh, negotiating table. So the peace agreement between the main group, Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and uh, former President uh, Aquino was signed in 2014. And in that uh, peace agreement, the uh, Islamic community, um, majority Islamic community, would have the self-governing, we call that the autonomous region, that they will be self-governing. Uh, they will have that right uh, determination. It will be democratic form of government, but uh, more or like like uh, more more or less like a federal state uh, in the southern Philippines, uh, but still under part of the uh, national government. So that was the basic element of that peace agreement that was uh, first signed in uh, 2014. Then. The Philippine government has to provide the implementing law in order to make that happen. That is within the Constitution of the Philippines. And finally, the Philippine Congress uh, passed that uh, law that was signed as a law in 2018. But 
in order to have it as effective law, it has to be ratified by the people who are in the area. And so that uh, ratification was held just a uh, few weeks ago, uh, you know, a few days ago. And there was a reaction in the Sulu majority did not vote for ratification. Although from the reports that we have from the conduct of the elections is that um, the, because uh, in terms of the voting, there were many people who did not go out to vote because there was that uh, threat that there will be some bombings and there will be dangerous situations. So many, many people stayed in the homes and did not go out to vote. So that's why the uh, no vote won with a slim majority over the yes vote. But uh, the analysis of the people would say if all the people went out to vote, then uh, the yes vote would have won also in that area. Wow, just the interesting twists and turns and ironies. You've mentioned mm -hmm. many here. But that land is a beautiful land. Uh, Philippines is known for uh, one of the islands in the central Visayas called Boracay Island, which is a, a tourist spot known all over the world. But uh, in southern Sulu and the different uh, islands nearby, there are beaches there that are much better than the Boracay beaches. But it's hard to go there because there's still an ongoing conflict and there is that uh, danger and there's terror coming from people who are using uh, their wealth and power to uh, earn their livelihood. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I, I want to zoom out a little bit. We've been talking, obviously, about the dynamics of this area on Christians, um, but I want to talk about Christianity more, more broadly in your country, and in particular, just the evangelical church. Is, is this a Christian community that you see as growing or shrinking right now? The evangelical church is growing in the Philippines. Right now, our current statistics is that 80% of 110 million Filipinos are Roman Catholics. About 10% are Protestant and Evangelicals. 5% would be Muslim, and the rest would be uh, the other different religions in, in the Philippines. So the, Rom the biggest uh, group would be the Roman Catholics, 80%. 
the evangelicals and Protestants combined would be 10%, Muslim would be 5%, and the, all other religions would be the remaining 5%. And so what has been causing the evangelical church to grow? The evangelical churches are growing, number one, because um, true to the name Evangel, they are very um, evangelistic, uh, focusing on the gospel proclamation, sharing the good news. Uh, they are very much involved in community involvement uh, as well as development, engaged in uh, social, uh, we would say, development of the people. So it's so they are involved in what we call holistic gospel. It's not only the proclamation of the gospel, but the demonstration of the gospel. But there's also one significant development within the church, Catholic Church that happened. Because um, if you know, in the uh, 60s and then going on to the 70s, there was the Second Vatican Council. And the Second Vatican Council had uh, uh, two landmark decisions that was helpful in the people really embracing um, faith. And what is that? The Second Vatican Council changed the language and the order of the Mass. Before, the Mass is said in Latin, and people are not able to understand what the, what the priests are saying, uh, because it is in Latin. And then secondly, uh, the Second Vatican Council uh, opened the Bible to be read by common people, or by everyone. And so this opening up of the Bible for everyone and then uh, changing the language and order of the Mass, then it created that movement of uh, people really studying the Bible, and then they can compare what is being said by the uh, priests in their homilies, because they can, now, they can now hear it in the vernacular, and then they compare it with the teachings of the Bible. And so those two factors created that kind of hunger and the openness and desire to know more about the biblical faith and many of the people have embraced uh, gospel truth and gospel Christianity. What would you say are the, the churches, the evangelical churches' biggest challenges right now? Well, one of the biggest challenges uh, among evangelicals would be uh, still the lack of full unity among everyone because the different expressions of our evangelical Christianity sometimes is a, a problem that we cannot work together. Um, that's one challenge. Uh, second would be the economic situation and condition in the Philippines, because largely while, uh, like many other countries, the economic realities are the oligarchs or the people who have land and influence are the ones who control the wealth of the nation and the large number of population are not uh, having that enjoyment of the full wealth of the nation. The churches are trying to address that. So the Philippine Council of Evangelical Churches have been trying to promote that unity movement and relationship. And thus far, it has created in that kind of uh, cooperation and growth. So we are having greater cooperation and unity now than in the past. And we thank God for what he is doing. That's why the churches are growing in the Philippines. The last question that I just want to ask you is about the current president, Rodrigo uh, Duterte. Duterte, yes. Obviously, you know, we who are in the West see a lot of headlines about how controversial he is, at least to our media, and some of the, the violence that seems to have been a part of his administration. And I'm wondering if 
You can talk a little bit about how the evangelical community has reacted to him. The Filipino Christians um, are divided when it comes to their response and reaction to our president. There are those who believe that he is God sent to save the Philippines from the hand of narco politicians and their cronies. And he is enjoying up to now more than 70% uh, approval rating and uh, of the entire population. Uh, that to the entire population or just among evangelicals? No, that's uh, the entire population. Now, in terms of the evangelical Christians, uh, we cannot make, uh, I think the a great majority are still the ones who are on the side of him, uh, support him, particularly the coming from the Visayas and the Mindanao, because this is the first time we have the president who comes from the from Mindanao area. Of the 15 presidents we had, he is the first coming from Mindanao. So those that are coming from Mindanao and the Visayas are very supportive of him. Now, those that are in Manila, majority among evangelicals still support him because, again, of what he is doing uh, in terms of uh, his fight against drugs. The Philippine Council of Evangelical Churches, as early as uh, two years ago, came out with a statement that we support the war on drugs, but we do not uh, support the extrajudicial killing. And we appeal to the president that he tries to uh, stop uh, those extrajudicial killing and uh, continue on. The war on drugs was not reported in the international media is the other effect of what has happened because of the war on drugs. There are people by the millions who surrendered voluntarily because of this, and they said they want to stop taking on drugs and they need help. And um, the government tried to also reach out to the religious community to help in the recovery of this uh, and rehabilitation of these drug uh, users. And that gave an opportunity to many churches also to do Bible study and do spiritual ministry to these offenders so that they will not uh, go back to that habit and to that uh, problem. So there's that uh, strong support. Now, there are also those who believe that the president, our president, is destroying the democratic institutions. And because of some of the expletives that he has and uh, uh, the strong man's position, then uh, he could be uh, er eroding the moral fiber of the society. So those are the, the division uh, that we see even on evangelical Christians. I would say that majority still support the president uh, because of they believe, as I've said earlier, that he is God sent to save the Philippines from the narco politicians and their cronies. But there are also the other, not it's not half and half, but the, the greater majority are still supporting him. But the other are very much concerned that the democratic institutions and the moral fiber is slowly being eroded with the the style of the leadership of our president. Yeah, in some ways it's not surprising. It, it is interesting that evangelical Christians in particular have, a sp they do they do tend to like authoritarian uh, leaders who, who get things done. I, I guess that would be the most neutral way of putting it, even if they sometimes push the envelope on legality. And you see that, you've seen that in Latin America, you've seen that in, in Europe. Uh, so it is an interesting phenomenon 
So, and it's not surprising in that regard. I was in Mindanao uh, about two weeks ago. I heard one evangelical leader saying, well, the casualty in relation to the, the war against drugs is about 5,000, he said. But uh, people do not know that there's at least 123,000 uh, operations against drugs, the people using drugs and attacking those that are uh, selling drugs. So he says 5,000 against 123,000, maybe that's acceptable. But I said, brother, even one person who died, you know, is a little, is a, is a problem. But uh, we know uh, it's not hard, it's hard to just do a one-to-one -one correspondence. But we say we are against drugs, but we do not want the summarily execution of the people. So just for people who aren't following the situation, if if I recall correctly from reading about it, what you have is law enforcement often going up to people that they suspect to be selling drugs or trafficking drugs and often shooting and killing them on the spot. Is, is that a correct understanding? Well, actually, the the instruction of the president is, you know, if the policemen, if, they, if you can see them, apprehend them. But if they fight, then don't get yourself killed. So uh, you better be the one standing rather than the one being killed. So that was the instruction that was given by the president. And so to some people were saying that encourages the kind of situation where uh, many people are executed. And um, the, the statement is, well, they fought. You know, they initiated the, the, um, the gunfight and therefore the... Uh, police authorities responded and retaliated, but uh, the problem is how do we know whether they really started when they are already dead? So that was some of the question that is being raised. Um, so we are continuing to say, while we support his uh, war against drugs, we are appealing that uh, somehow uh, a more creative way will be used on how to handle that issue. The drug problem is really an issue that has not been addressed by the past administrations in the country. And uh, we are becoming a narco-politics country like other countries. And this current president uh, is trying to address that. Now, one of the concerns that was expressed is that majority or the great majority of those who were killed on the issue about arrest on relation to drugs are the small we call the small fry, but the the big uh, drug lords are not uh, really apprehended, and that's what we are trying to ask and praying that somehow in this war against drugs, uh, we deal also with the big big fish and not just with the small fry. What is the main drug that people are uh, trafficking? Is it uh, heroin? Uh, it's cocaine? called shabu or uh, meta. The common name is shabu. It's the, one of the cheapest that can be produced, and most of that is imported uh, coming from other countries, and in particular, China would be one of the biggest suppliers of that. And then uh, they can actually put up uh, manufacturing plants even in houses for that. So that's the most common drug that is being sold. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'd like to also say that... Uh, this situation about war on drugs also gave us an opportunity for the churches in particular to work with the government 
uh, in providing uh, counseling and help to the surrenderees so that the surrenderees are saying, uh, we want to stop using this, we need some help, and they have some counseling. And so Bible studies are being done among uh, those that have surrendered. And we have people who are saying that for those who have gone through Bible studies, those who have gone through counseling, they have very little incidence of relapse. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, on going to uh, going back to the use of drugs, as against those who do not go through counseling and Bible studies, then they have high incidence of relapse, even though they surrendered. And so, in a sense, there is an opportunity to help them, to help in time of this need. And so, we still continue to pray that. Uh, as evangelicals and as a church, we will be able to continue to be the salt and light in the community and be able to provide, um, we will say, a long-term solution so that um, we want to see the Philippines become a place where peace, justice, and righteousness reign, a Philippines where everyone has a decent standard of living, and a Philippines where Jesus Christ is recognized as Lord of all. That's great. In fact, that gives me an idea for a story Christianity Today ought to do in the future. So that uh, that's very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us that really robust overview of um, some of the different challenges that the Philippines and the church community is facing right now there. That was a really informative discussion. Listeners who have feedback for this can offer it to us. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcasts at Christianity Today. Com. I just want to remind everyone who enjoys the show that you can continue to make it possible by becoming a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine. You can do that by continuing to support us by going to morect.com slash podcasts. Obviously, we produce a magazine and we tell you about it pretty often, um, but we also sometimes talk about some of the other stuff that we do, and in particular... Mark recently was traveling overseas and got to give a speech in German, from what I understand. No. Oh. <laughs> nine, nine. Uh-huh. Wait, Mark, you went to Germany and you didn't speak in German? No, no. It was amazing. I was at the University of Mainz okay. in their American Studies Department. And uh, all the students in the American Studies Department have to have to speak English. It's at, it's at something called the Obama Institute. Mm. Okay. Interesting. So it was a, it was a conference on uh, religious periodicals in the U.S. and in, uh, in Europe. It was, uh, our host was Anya Maria Basimir, who's visited our, who's visited our uh, Christianity Today a couple times, and then she invited me over to speak on how we go about determining content in Christianity Today. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to meet fellow Christian journalists, uh, Mark Woods from Christian Today in England, and uh, Felicia Fer- Ferraria, who is an incredible editor-in-chief, publisher, all around, I'd say, publishing star in Sweden. Anyway, she was talking about her work and how she does her work and what she's doing, and both Mark and I, when we walked away, said she's very impressive, and we both said we'd love to work for her someday. So I <laughs> so met some very impressive people there. Uh, got to talk about the nature of religious uh, periodicals. Uh, it's just one of the things I do with uh, Christianity Today, and it's really a privilege to be able to do that. All right, so if you want to support more Globe Trotting by Mark... <laughs> you can do so by going to morect.com slash podcast. That's morect.com slash podcast. Now we have the moment you've been waiting for where Mark can continue to talk about his trip via Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. 
I know there's a bunch of cool things because Mark and I oh talked about his gosh. trip last week. So just pick this, one. This you can have a it. precious moment. How about a precious hour or two? Okay, with fine. A, with a slideshow. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, probably the highlight of the trip was visiting friends uh, in uh, Bratislava, Slovakia. They are friends we've known for 30 years. He works for Habitat. He's been he's been a vice president of Latin American operations. He's now vice president of European and African operations. They're one of those uh, friends that we actually don't correspond that much by email or Facebook or telephone. We get to see them maybe once every three or four years uh, because of our, our travels or their travels. Our families did a lot of stuff together 25, 30 years ago. All those kids are now grown up, married, having kids of their own. But it's an interesting friendship in that when we meet, it's like we just pick up where we left off. There's no awkwardness. There's no yeah. no whatever. It's just that type of friendship where you just you just enter right back into the conversation like it was. We, we just saw each other last weekend. So it's such a delight always to be with them. What did you do in Slovakia with them? The most interesting thing was a tour of, of Bratislava led by a young man who was just thought Bratislava was the greatest thing ever, which is what you want <laughs> in a tour guide. He was very... Very interested in sharing the Soviet past, and I think one of the more interesting a- aspects of it, although generally Slovakians are very happy to be be out from under the the oppressive umbrella of the Soviet Union. He did mention, he did say in, in Bratislava there are quite a few people, older people especially, who look f- fondly back on the days of communism because of the security it brought, in terms of jobs especially. So I just thought that was an interesting thing to hear and realize. And then he, there was other complications about the history, but overall. Very interesting tour, very interesting trip. Great time to be with my be with our friends. Awesome. So if people want to hear more from you, go to your newsletter, correct? Correct. It's the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report, which you can find at ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report. And uh, I comment on links, and uh, many people seem to find it helpful. So I encourage you to subscribe. Well, I, I want to thank Mark for this. I From time to time, I also read the Galley Report. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, great. our magazine in the Philippines, Evangelicals Today, got its inspiration from Christianity Today, uh, because when uh, Christianity Today uh, started um, during the time of Carl Henry, uh, it was there to be the magazine for the NAE, National, National Association of Evangelicals. And when I was leading, uh, when we had the Philippine Council of Evangelical Churches, which is the Evangelical Alliance in the Philippines, we say, why don't we have also our evangelical magazine? And so we call it Evangelicals Today. So thank you for that inspiration. And uh, yeah. we pray that um, yeah, the, we continue to tell that story of what God is doing and uh, address issues and be able to bring biblical perspectives on the issues that we face in the world today. Yep, exactly thank our purpose so as well. Mm-hmm. Bishop Sendero, do you have something for us that's happened to you recently that brought you joy? Well, one of that is that, uh, you know, while we have this controversy about our president, he actually declared the last Sunday of January to be the National Bible Day in the Philippines. Uh, last uh, Monday was the time when um, there was that celebration in the flag ceremony or in the radio stations, people paused to read the Bible, and that is called the National Bible Day. Uh, so it was declared as a special working holiday. Uh, it's still holiday, but it's a time for people to work, uh, but a uh, time also for people to 
take time to read the Bible. So we can say that uh, this president uh, wants to do something that would be significant under his watch in terms of what can be done to solve many issues, many uh, problems in the Philippines. And uh, we hope and we pray that God will continue to guide him and direct him. And uh, ultimately, our hope is not on whoever is who sits on the seat of power in the Philippines, but ultimately our hope is on the Lord Jesus Christ who said, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. And we pray that uh, the sovereign guidance, direction of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ will be upon our nation so that uh, we are not only called the Christian nation in name, but Christian nation in practice as well as in conduct uh, and all of beliefs. Yeah, the one thing I never tire of saying is that the most political statement that Christians make every week is on Sunday morning when they declare that Jesus is Lord. Yes, so. and that's our aspiration. As I said earlier, I want to see, and our vision is the Philippines will become a nation where peace, justice, and righteousness reign, where everyone has a decent standard of living, and where Jesus Christ is recognized as Lord of all. Is there a website that people can find out more about the work that you do or someplace on social media where they can follow you? Uh, it's the called the uh, PCEC. Uh, it's Philippine Council of Evangelical Churches, but the acronym is PCEC. So we have that uh, uh, website of PCEC. There's also a social media called the Philippine Council of Evangelical Churches. All right. Thank you so much, Bishop Tendero. My precious moment, I thought of a lot of random different things. But one thing I did get to do this weekend that I had been wanting to do for a while is there's this group that organizes some stuff at Northerly Island. Northerly Island is located near Soldier Field for anyone who watches football games or what have you. Um, And it used to be an airport and now they have just really like random stuff there. But um, once a month they have winter events there. And so they have dog sledding that you can watch people do, which I had never seen dog sledding live before. And they also brought in different animals that um, some of these local groups had rescued. So I got to see like two different owls, including an owl that was probably like six or seven inches tall. It was not very big, but it was very cute. They had free out chocolate. You can sit in front of the fire, which was fantastic because the day itself was extremely cold, which I know Mark and I already discussed. But I really still like being outside as much as I can when it's chilly outside and doing winter stuff is really fun. Yeah, embrace the cold, baby. <laughs> exactly. Better than being inside. I don't want to be inside very much. So anyway. Is that why I could never find you in your office? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wandering around in the parking lot. I, I, know. I know what it means to be cold. I did my Master of Divinity at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, so I know what bitter cold could you, be. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'd, I'm glad I'm here yeah. in Manila. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wish we were there. I don't know. I think, honestly, I really like have been loving this winter because we've had so much snow. I don't necessarily like it when it's cold and there's no snow, but everything looks really cool right now. There's all these cool, like, ice formations. I was down by the lake on Saturday, um, as I was saying, and so you could just see the way that the ice has formed around these different plants or um, forms on some of, like, the railing um, of the actual, like, lakefront trail or just the ice floating in Lake Michigan as well. I don't know. It's and some of, of the ice from the last uh, ice, some of the snow from the last few days has had that sparkly quality. I know. It's been amazing. Yeah. Oh, 
really yeah, like. I, I like when you know when there is uh, several inches of uh, snowfall and you mm-hmm. can see and just you know uh, though you cannot see it with your bare eye, you can see the wonder of God's power. So yeah, and those those are some of the things that I enjoy. Good. I'm glad we can all appreciate winter. It's a great season. (laughs) All right. People can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. The music is done by Sweeps. Thank you to everyone who supports our show by going to morect.com slash podcasts. We truly appreciate you. And if you want to do us another favor, you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are super grateful for you. Have a good one. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.